0: You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Hawley, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that design skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Chef cookbook author and activist, Julia Tertian. It's really hard to know where to begin with Julia and Julia's bio. She is a celebrity chef, having cooked alongside Gwyneth Paltrow and having published New York Times bestselling cookbooks which are much more than just a collection of recipes. If you haven't grabbed one of Julia's cookbooks, you really need to. They share deeply personal and meaningful narratives on supporting one another, on activism, inclusion, equity, and justice, alongside really yummy recipes. And we also see all those themes in a popular podcast she hosts. She's also a podcast host, Keep Calm and Cook On, that spotlights individuals driving change and justice in the food industry. She launched Equity at the Table, which is an online portal that highlights the work and services of LGBTQ and people of color in the food industry, which has been historically, like many industries, dominated by white men at the top. And today we cover such a broad range of issues. We talk about the intersection of food and equity. She calls out the challenges with this concept of food desert. She talks about how her identity as an LGBTQ activist was formed, how her volunteering has helped shape who she is and how she sees the world. And we also talk about what food means to people, how universal it is, and how much more meaningful it became in many ways during the pandemic. I really couldn't think of a more perfect guess as we come off of World Hunger Day on May 28th and enter Pride Month this June. Welcome, Julia, to the show. So excited to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here.
0: So let's dive right in. In addition to writing cookbooks, and oh, we're recording this during lunchtime, and I just checked out your website <laughs> again, and I am very hungry right now.
1: <laughs> you always have to eat before interviewing someone oh who works my in gosh. food. <laughs> that
0: is so true, especially when you're interviewing a chef that makes delicious meals. Really uh, encourage folks to go check out the site, uh, particularly the healthy comfort food. I think we've all kind of I dove into the comfort food zone over the past year, year and a half, right? Um, And it just looks like a really nice and healthy take on it. So uh, really recommend that. But in addition to this wonderful food that you make and help us make, you also put a spotlight on the intersection of food and social issues like racial justice and LGBTQIA plus representation, body positivity, Tell us why that's important for you to incorporate your own journey using food, especially comfort food, as a lens to talk about these important topics.
1: Sure, Um, you know, I would say my work is incredibly personal and I feel so grateful that I get to bring myself to my work and my full self, which includes the fact that I'm like a very proud, openly gay woman you know, amongst other parts of, of myself. And I know firsthand what it feels like to be able to, you know, show up in my cookbooks, on social media, wherever I might show up. Um, I know what it feels like to show up and not be afraid to be myself and to be supported in that. And I know how important that is, not only for me, but for example, for like the larger queer community. And so I just feel I don't know, very passionate about making sure that experience is available for as many people as possible, both on the side of being the person who gets to be themselves and on behalf of, you know, the people who get to see themselves represented. Um, You know, I've, I've experienced that. It's a really wonderful thing. I have been the beneficiary of seeing other people represent themselves. And therefore, I've, you know, felt more connected. I've felt like I've understood myself more, you know, that kind of thing. And I just, I really believe in that power of not only representation, but just connection. And, you know, food has been the through line through my whole life. I've loved to cook since before I can remember. My entire career has been in cookbooks. And so I just feel like there's many ways to access that type of connection. Um, But for me, food is just like the easiest and most delicious way to access that. And it gives us so many different avenues into that. And I just think that type of connection is what leads to true change, whether it be, you know, in anti racism work or whatever it might be. But it has to start with that human connection.
0: And how did you get to that pride in your identity? Is that something that was natural for you? I know so many folks that are in the queer community or are struggling with the, the biases that we see in our country and world across many different dimensions don't have that naturally mm-hmm. and have on a journey to get that. So curious what yours look like and anything
1: that you would share to get to sure right now. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because I don't, I, I feel like it's a yes or no question, but I, I'm not really sure if it's like, if it comes to me naturally, I think, I mean, I would hope that we're all, you know, born into this world and welcome to be ourselves. Like that sounds like the most healthy, natural thing. Um, But I think we're conditioned to feel otherwise about ourselves and each other. I think we're, you know, we live in a society that makes a lot of people feel othered. Um, I know what that has felt like as a gay woman, but I'm also an extremely privileged, white, cisgendered woman. So yes, I know that experience in terms of like my sexual orientation, my marriage, that kind of thing. Um, But I hold that on one hand with a lot of privilege on the other. Um, But you know, that gives me access to empathy for people who, you know, might feel othered in different ways so i guess what comes to me naturally is just the desire to be a compassionate person <laughs> like that is something i I think about a lot like i try to practice i i try to receive when it's you know being given to me like um so yeah i don't know it's it's complicated because i just i, I don't think our world is set up um, to treat everyone with like dignity and respect, which is that is certainly you know, true, you know. Yeah, not great, <laughs> but yeah, you know, yeah. we're all chipping away. So, well, and dive into
0: that a little bit in this idea of food as a through line. We've all seen the reckoning of the past year on racial justice issues, and one of the most prominent, and I, I'm um, talking from a position, like being close to nonprofits who are on the front line, these food banks who, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the surge in demand and the drop in resources um, to meet that demand. We've, we've experienced a lot in food, food insecurity, and in racial and social justice over the past year. So tell us how that intersects for you, how you see that through your work, especially in a moment where we and now just are starting to again be able to gather around a table and share food together which is such a cultural touchstone Mm -hmm. for um for our country across many different cultures and Mm -hmm. many different sets of people um what is what does that look like in your work how do you see that Uh,
1: I mean I guess it looks like so many different things it's I feel like what you just asked there's like so many questions within that question. Right. And I guess the first thing that's coming to mind is the fact that I think what we have all experienced just as a world over the past, um, we were just joking before we started recording, like, what is time? (laughs) Like, I don't know what day it is. Um, You know, my concept of time is just, I feel very confused. So I guess the past year and some change, um, which has felt like maybe a decade or two, but over the course of the pandemic, I, I don't know when it comes to f- access to food and food justice, by which I mean equal access to you know fresh, healthy food that makes us feel good and connected to other people. Um, I think when it comes to that, I think the pandemic has just you know put basically like a highlighter or a spotlight on all of the issues that already existed within you know our various food systems or just society at large like it's not like the food systems broke when the pandemic started like they were already pretty broken it's not like racism just started it's been around you know forever um but i think all of these things have been just you know shoved into the spotlight which honestly there's a part of me that's grateful for that because i think the more attention um and the more action hopefully the more change obviously i'm not grateful for the pandemic but i um you know i'm grateful if if we get to have some lasting change come out of some of this. So, you know, I think one of the places we see that is exactly what you said. It's at food pantries, especially in the United States, you know, a country that has a surplus of many things, including food, right? Like there's enough food in this country to feed everyone. But many of us and many of our neighbors and, you know, just extended communities are hungry. And that doesn't make, very much sense, like, and it, and it shouldn't make sense. Um, so I think seeing the lines at the food pantry, you know, I, my wife and I volunteer at our local food pantry. It's a very regular part of our lives. And it's, it's a place where we interact with members of our community and kind of have a sense of what's going on, you know, in our zip code. And we've seen the sort of ebb and flow, you know, since we've lived here, but especially over the last year or so. And I guess in terms of how that comes into my work, um, I guess it does arrive in, in different ways, but I just like to talk about all of this stuff. Like the conversation we're having right now is feels like a conversation, an extension of like the conversations I have, whether it's, you know, in my cookbooks or, you know, articles I write, or, you know, I have a podcast to talk about a lot of this stuff. And I basically feel like the average, you know, home cook, the average cookbook reader, you know, the people that I am kind of like in this ongoing conversation with, I basically feel like home cooks are incredibly essential and often really undervalued. And I think we, and I include myself in the community of home cooks, we often undervalue ourselves and our contributions. And I think sometimes we don't always realize that the skills we have as home cooks can be extended into our communities. You know, we're people who are providing for others, we're, you know, being considerate of other people. We are sticking to things like, like budgets and stuff like this, that, you know, these things can be applied in so many different places. So I feel like when I'm talking to home cooks, I'm not just talking about whatever recipe is on the page of my cookbook, which I care a lot about, (laughs) like I care so much about, but we're talking about more than that. We're talking about how this fits into our lives. And I just, you know, I try to never underestimate my readers and I try to think of them, not just as people who are, you know, trying to figure out what to make for dinner for, you know, their families or, you know, their friends, but also like, how does cooking fit into their lives and into their communities?
0: and are really proximate to how critical it is, right? And uh, the work involved and the nutrition aspect. So there's the uh, extreme side of our poverty equation right now where folks actually don't have access to food at all. And there's also a large majority of our population that don't have access to nutritious foods, right? And these, uh, these food deserts where, the bodega and processed and packaged foods are the easiest and cheapest option, which then leads to all sorts of health issues down the line. And our home cooks understand that right more deeply than many of us, even the folks that are on the consumer side. So it's such an interesting take on how to create social change and impact and uh Would love for you to share a little bit more. I know a lot of this comes to life for you and your equity at the table, which is free digital directory, which is incredibly useful and incredibly beautiful (laughs) at the same time. Go check it out Um, with the spirit of build a longer table, not a higher fence, which says so much in so few words. Tell us about this concept. Tell us about equity at the table and how it aligns with your work. Yeah
1: yeah so that kind of old proverb or aphorism um you know build a longer table not a higher fence is not one we came up with it's just one we really believe in um it's a very you know old proverb and i think it it sort of speaks for itself and it is about you know i think just really defining what inclusion and equity mean you know these things these words get tossed around so much that I think sometimes we forget what they actually mean. And I think the food industry, like pretty much every (laughs) industry, is plagued with, you know, gender discrimination and racism and all sorts of um, othering, you know, what we were sort of talking about earlier. And, you know, this is something I and many other people have observed over and over and over. And basically a couple of years ago, I was talking to some other friends who work in food media about this. And we were talking about just what other tools could exist to kind of move this conversation forward and to kind of move the needle forward on, on the conversation. And one thing that kept coming up was this idea of a digital directory where anyone could go and search and find people who do all sorts of things in the food industry who are not typically represented. So basically long story short, like pretty much like anyone other than like Straight white men, (laughs) primarily, um, who get centered in so many conversations. So, Equity at the Table is a free to use, free to join digital directory for women, non binary, and gender non conforming individuals in the food industry. We focus primarily on people of color and the queer community. And yeah, you can go and you can search by profession, by location, and by identification. You can also search for a combination of any of those things. So if you're looking for, let's say, I'll use myself as an example. Um, If you're looking for a cookbook author who's based in New York state, um, who is a member of the queer community, I mean, you can find me on the site, but you can also find other people who, you know, identify in the same way. And for me, this is just like a very helpful tool, um, you know, the food industry which just so many industries under one large umbrella, you know, it's, it's cookbooks, it's restaurants, it's, it's farming, you know, um, people who make wine, it's, it just goes on and on and on. And I think looking at equity at the table is a reminder about the abundance of the people who who are involved in this work rather than the scarcity, um, you know, rather than the handful of voices we normally hear from, it's a reminder that there's so many voices. So it's basically, you know, a really helpful tool. It's something I'm really glad exists. And, um, for me personally, you know, I think it definitely comes from this desire for like practical kind of everyday tangible, um, just answers to questions. You know, that's how I think about recipes and other things I do. So I think, you know, I, I don't know. I just want to back up a second because, you know, I, we're talking about so many, so many big issues in this conversation today. And one thing that I heard you saying. Which I think is such an important point is about you know like how food is available in different communities or how it's not available, and you know that term food desert, which I think a lot of people are really familiar with. That's a term I used for a really long time um, until I had a really um, eye-opening conversation with Karen Washington, who is a uh, a farmer, a community organizer, an activist. She's based in the Bronx and upstate New York, um, and is just a really important woman that I feel like I wish more people knew about. So any chance I get to say her name, I'm I'm eager to. And um, Karen has long talked about using the term food apartheid instead of food desert. Um, you know, like a desert is something that's naturally occurring, um, and things grow in deserts. You know, there's there's things that thrive in deserts, and calling you know communities where there is not like you know, fresh, healthy food available, like that's not something that's naturally occurring. Um, that's something that happens through, you know, just racism and segregation and capitalism and all these other things. And I think just to change the way we name these things, just to remind us like what they actually mean, that's just something that really sticks with me. And I think in some ways, you know, it it reminds me a bit of equity at the table in terms of just like naming actual people and naming these actual things and putting faces to names. I don't know. I think a lot about language in my work. Um, You know, I'm a a writer. um, So words are really important to me. And I just think it's really valuable to, you know, just take a moment to pause whenever we can to really, you know, be incredibly clear about what we're describing. Because I think sometimes you know, words like food desert and stuff, let us kind of skip over things in a way that are just so, so important. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that.
0: It's such a smart reframing. And and thank you for educating me and our listeners on that. I think, you know, it's a reminder that it's not just a, an immediate need to fill but it is an intentional and structural challenge exactly. that we're addressing.
1: Yeah.
0: And um, that is so true on so many of these issues that we are talking about here, but just in general and making sure that we are super clear <laughs> yeah. about that. And that intentionality, I think, is incredibly important way um, to, to move on the path of social justice. So totally. thank
1: you for that. Yeah, no, of course.
0: And you touched upon in some ways the need for an equity at the table is a function of the current food industry not creating that space and not highlighting a wide diversity of chefs and making that access fair and equal and open. And would be curious, a lot of the listeners of this podcast are working within companies and trying to address social justice issues and trying to use business as a force for good. And would be curious what your take on what food industry and companies specifically can do to make the industry more equitable. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Wow. Such a huge question. I mean, I don't know that I'm the person to answer it, but I can definitely give you my take on it. Um, And I guess... I guess my take is to, I don't know, this is not like original by any means, but that's totally fine. Like, I think it's to talk to the people who are most impacted and to actually listen to them and to not assume, you know, you know, the answer. I feel like an example of that from my personal life was five years ago, basically shortly after the 2016 presidential election. And when there was, you know, a rise in anti-Muslim, just uh, hatred and my wife and I, we had looked up um, a local mosque in our area. Cause we saw a lot of people doing work with their local mosques and supporting them and stuff. And then we were, we just were like, Oh, we're going to plan something. We're going to support this place. And I reached out to them and was like, you know, we, you know, our community wants to you know do whatever we can like what's the best thing we can do and this particular place we reached out to they were like that's really kind of you but like we're good (laughs) like we feel like equipped and supported and everything and like thanks for checking in but like no thanks basically Mm -hmm. and um I don't know that like phone call has stayed with me very very closely and really was just a good reminder of like don't assume just because you're in a position of more privilege that, you know, what, or uh, I'll back up, maybe not necessarily more privilege, just a different, you know, a place of a type of privilege, you know, that you know what would be best for someone who has a different experience than you, you know, and to just talk and ask and listen and kind of follow their lead. So I think anyone working at a big company or a small company Whatever, anyone who's within a community where not everyone is the same as you, which is hopefully where most people are, because I think that's probably just a, a more interesting place to be. I think really listening to those who are most impacted by these structures and systems and figuring out you know, the best way to support whatever their needs are. And that starts with finding out what their needs are and also not relying on them exclusively to tell you what their needs are, you know, to do whatever educating you can on your own terms. I think that's also like, I think both those things are really important.
0: Right. Well, and thinking about that as the foundation for both external philanthropy, right? And more traditional giving, but also look at internal business practice and how you are living those values and assuming that you likely have employees and customers that are facing these issues in different ways. And so just as important for institutions to not only give and volunteer, but also to examine how their own businesses are structured to, to your point around food deserts versus food apartheid, so, so many businesses, while there is very good intention and value sets now were built <laughs> structurally in ways in which that, that created others, right? Very mm-hmm. intentionally and created privilege among a certain set. So uh, I think a really nice way to think about having your ear to the ground on mm-hmm. what issues really
1: are. Yeah, totally.
0: So taking that to the individual level, and you know the the folks that listen to this podcast are in the social impact space in some way, shape, or form across sector, and uh, want to support and want to help in meaningful ways and not in harmful ways, and understand that that can happen unintentionally. Curious what you would share with them. What can they do to promote social justice from their kitchens, that home cook uh, that you were talking about, grocery stores, bookstores? What actions would you employ? Sure. You
1: know, I, I think one of the things that being a daily home cook for a really long time has reminded me is that, you know, every day I'm making decisions that have a political and social impact, whether or not I realize it. And that includes like where I buy my ingredients and (laughs) whose recipe am I following? And if I don't feel like cooking, where am I picking up my takeout from? (laughs) Um, You know, who am I inviting to sit around my table, which, you know, it's been a while, but that's starting to change. Thanks to the vaccine. You know, all of these decisions really do have like political and social ramifications. And I think just taking advantage of that and being mindful of it is, is is powerful. You know, thinking about when it comes to my ingredients, do I have the ability here to maybe support a local business or a local farm? You know, just being aware of those decisions, I think, can not only like change what you're eating and who you're sharing it with, but I think it can be just this constant sort of daily reminder that those kinds of decisions are ones we make all the time and we have a lot of power, like more power than I think people who have more power than us would like us to remember often. Food just reminds me of that all the time. And does this mean every time I pick up like a bunch of carrots or a dozen eggs or a loaf of bread, am I thinking about politics? No, (laughs) like that's not the case. Sometimes we've run out of something and you know, (laughs) I'm just picking up groceries, but it does give me this this just way of approaching my day-to-day life with these sort of little, I think of them as like little post-it reminders all over my life, right? But like, oh, these things do add up. And, you know, food is one of the only things like every person in the world has in common. So it is this thing that we can think about. And when we reflect on it, I think we really can see and visualize like all these strings that tie so many different things, especially things that can get quite complicated. Like we can see how all these things are tied together. And I'm just very grateful to have something that, you know, food that helps me make sense of all this.
0: Well, and as someone who not every time but likely when you're picking up bread you're you're thinking about these issues and you you hold this as very clearly a responsibility you have as you work one of the things that we've been talking about on this pod this past year is how we as social justice leaders and supporters and advocates restore ourselves and have the energy to continue to do the work where we see incremental change but it is incremental and it feels long and curious what sustains you what is the best part Mm. of your day
1: what sustains me and what is the best part of my day every day is just basically the l-shaped couch that I share with my wife and our two dogs, that to me, like when I close my eyes and think about like my happy place, my safe place, you know, it's it's there. So I'm very grateful for that, just like a physical and emotional comfort that I have access to every day. But in terms of the long, slow road to change, something I just think about a lot is I, I never knew my maternal grandparents. They died long before I was born. They were refugees to this country, to America. Uh, my mom is first generation. And I often think about them and the difference between their life and their life experiences and my mom's and mine. And, you know, that's just a couple of generations the difference between my mom's upbringing and the upbringing she was able to provide for me are just really different. And, you know, so I think about like on a day-to-day basis, change might feel really slow, (laughs) but when I zoom out and I think about just my own family, um, my immediate family, like the changes are monumental. And that makes me just very curious about a decade from now, 50 years from now, a hundred years from now. And definitely gives me some hope. That transformation is possible. And I think
0: that this past year has showed us all that in some ways, how quickly we can all change when we have to need to, and what is possible. And to your point around not being grateful that the pandemic happened, but there were some, it, it gave us a platform and it, it highlighted those issues that we were already tackling with and let, Get buried in our headlines that no longer would or no longer could be able to, right? So yeah, that really resonates. And just want to thank you for joining us today and giving us a peek into your work and your delicious food. It's definitely one time (laughs) for me. (laughs) I'm going to go make some of your delicious meals. um, And thank you for the the way that you do your work in the spirit of it. It's just really inspiring.
1: Well, I really just appreciate that. And I appreciate the, you know, just opportunity to kind of zoom out with you a little and talk about how all these things connect, because obviously this is stuff I think about a lot, but usually my day-to-day life is just trying to figure out, you know, what we're going to eat today. <laughs> and I, I love that, right? <laughs> like, it's so much fun, but it's it's just valuable to have a conversation like this. So thank you so much for, for asking me to join you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune in to our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.